0: We're here today to talk about Iquá, and because Iquá is <laughs> on fire lately, but this episode has been planned for a couple months now, so it's just been kind of delayed. But um, but this is a really important topic, and I have a guest to speak about Equa. and I'm really honored to have you here, Gary. So, um, can you introduce yourself?
1: Yes, uh, my name is William Gary Osborne. I go by Gary. Um, I'm a traveling enrolled member of the uh, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Um, I have a degree in uh, education, business education from Appalachia State University as well as a JD, a Juris Doctor from the University of North Texas at Dallas uh, College of Law. I've been in education for a long time. Uh, Went into corporate training and been doing education training for adults uh, for sometime, but I've always uh, looked back and looked at history. My minor was in history and looked at history, especially when it came to uh, Native American history, what happened to our people, our individual tribes, what happened to my people and others, and just uh, well-versed in it. Thank Thank you. you,
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, So I know you're gonna get into the back history of ICWA. I think a lot of people have been discussing the current situation, which is is important, but I think a lot of people miss the history, the back history, and why we have ICWA. So, um, if you would like to start on that history, thank you.
1: Sure. Yeah, um, it, to understand what's going on today, and it really sets up the tone and sets up what is being argued today for Iqua for the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, some of the arguments that are taking place that are being made by. Uh, I would say, opposing institutions, institutions, not just individuals, but institutions that's trying to get ICWA struck down. The the history really leads up to where the arguments and what is the correct argument on why ICWA is so important, why we have to keep it in place, and, and why it has to, to exist. Um, going way back, of course, we all know about the the wars between the U.S. and various Native tribes and what happened in the taking of land and taking, you know, and what they did to us basically. Uh, at the end of the Indian Wars, uh, you know, there was so much fighting and we basically, as a people, as, as Native Americans, uh, we held on to our beliefs, we held on to our culture, we were put on reservations, but yet we held on to who we were. So the individuals in time came up with a different way, of trying to assimilate us or to remove what was that problem. That problem was us on our lands and demanding that we will not be removed from our lands, that we we are going to exist as who we are. So it was basically, uh, as the old saying goes, by a General Pratt was his name, General Richard Henry Pratt, kill the Indians, save the man. So they kind of took a different turn here. So instead of killing us off, they went to, uh, instead of a physical genocide, they went to a cultural genocide to assimilate us. To one day, their ultimate goal was to totally assimilate us and to get rid of the reservations and get rid of any, any thought of, of uh, indigenous people living on their lands and, and assimilating within U.S. society. So the idea was to culturally genocide and that idea, uh, what spawned, I might say, uh, the government Indian boarding schools, which was created by general Richard Henry Pratt, by the way. Uh, he was a general in the military. You can look up his, his history on who he was, but we're just going to stick with how he came into this, where, what was his role in the, in the Indian boarding schools. And he came up with the idea while he, while he was, uh, overseeing the, uh, uh a military fort. It was a prison for criminals in Florida. And he came up with the idea of Indian boarding schools. And what it was, was basically to eliminate traditional Native American ways of life and, and replace the mainstream Native American culture uh, with mainstream American culture. And the setup began in the mid 1800s. He started thinking about it and the very first one that came out, the first Indian boarding school that came out was Carlisle Indian School. Now this institution of the of the, of the boarding schools really started about 1869, and it went all the way to the 1960s. Uh, and what it was, was they would literally walk in, uh, we're, we're the only people uh, that where this was done to, we would literally walk in uh, and they would literally walk in and take our children and take them from us and send them out to these Indian boarding schools. Uh, as soon as they arrived, boom, the whole wiping out the whole destruction, the whole removing of who we were. Again, this wasn't about race, it was about a culture. And as we go and and, and we talk about this later, it, it's saying after for what Iqua was made for. But as a culture wiping it out, they cut our hair. They the, the children were not allowed to speak their language. They were not allowed to to believe in any of their traditional, religious beliefs. They were not anything that was part of their tribe, part of their people, part of their culture was wiped out. Not allowed to be practiced, not allowed to be even thought of. Uh, my grandmother was in an Indian boarding school in Oklahoma, and she told me a lot about this, of, of what they did. If you were, if you spoke your language, if you, if you tried to do anything, as they said, Indian way, you were punished, physically punished, mentally punished. Uh, and, to where they would wipe it out. And these children, the boarding schools were literally treated like military boot camps. And they had to wear, I, I don't wanna say white because a lot of other peoples in this country wears the same type of clothes and has the same type of culture. It may be a little bit different on how they do things, but it's based the same. It's, it's a European based uh, uh, United States culture. And that's what they were made to wear American, you know, American culture clothes and they cut their hair and the, and the girls had to wear their hair a certain way. And they were teaching them uh, trade crafts, how to uh, uh, sew, uh, farm, which we already knew how to farm, but it was their way of farming. Um, how to do, uh, you know, carpentry and other types of trades to where ultimately their goal was to keep them from ever going back to their people or ever going back to the reservation, but assimilating into United States society. That was the goal. And so, and it even went to through time, they would even say internships and they would send native children, uh, farther east away. And this was the, the Indian boarding schools, mind you, was really set up a lot for, because of the history and the timing for the Western nations, uh, the, the Lakota, the Dakota, the Dene, a pack, all of them. And they would send them even farther east on these internships, which basically what it was, was almost pretty much slave labor. They would send these children to these white families out east for a summer to, uh, to work for the family and make money, but they're rarely ever paid. And they were used basically as forced labor, slave labor, and then they would be sent back to the school. And these children, the the normally would be at the school for four years. Yeah, that was the normal. Okay, and they would, uh, you know, hoping that they would never go back. And a lot of them didn't. They either uh, died from sickness or basically a broken heart in a lot of ways. And it really upsets me from the stories that my grandmother and my mother have told me, um, as well as uh, just working them to death. And, or they may have punished them and physically abused them to the point of where they died. And then they would tell the native family, oh, well, they they died of this and they would, and they would just bury the body. Uh, there's been reports up in Canada where they have found mass graves of children from these Indian boarding schools. Canada got the idea from us. They have found uh, graves, unmarked graves where the old Indian boarding schools were. Uh, And they just lied to the families and said that, well, we're sorry. They also tried to adopt them out. Uh, My grandmother uh, was at an Indian boarding school and it's 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 an interesting story, but she was going to that Indian boarding school in Oklahoma and my grandfather found out, she was in the seventh grade, found out that they were going to adopt her out. They weren't going to tell her parents that they were adopting her out. And it was a Presbyterian family. The school was run by Presbyterians. Now mind you, these schools were run by religious or government organizations. This was, a, this was a system. This wasn't just, oh, this school here and this school here. No, this was a system that was organized and they knew exactly what they were doing and they were in connection with each other and they were doing what they what they wanted to do and that was cultural genocide. But my grandmother, she was gonna be adopted out by a Presbyterian family. I don't know what they were gonna tell her family, but they uh, I was gonna adopt her out. My, grand, my great grandfather found out and literally walked into the school, grabbed my grandmother and took her home. My grandmother never went back to school again because he was afraid that he would never see her again. So she only got a seventh grade education. Now that's a rare story because again they came in and and literally rounded up our children now there were several native families that did what they everything they could to hide their children we had to hide our children to keep them from being taken away from by 1926 83 percent of native children were in indian boarding schools had been come in taken away from their families taken away from their community taken away uh from from their people and and taken to an indian boarding school and again Get them away, re-educate them, cultural genocide. So, the like I said, the very first off-reservation boarding school was founded in 1879. It was Carlisle Indian School of Pennsylvania, which is a, a famous Indian school. It's found by General Pratt. Uh, again, modern design developed by him uh, while he was at Fort Marion Prison in Florida. Served as the headmaster of that Indian boarding school for 25 years. Now Getting into, we've given the background, what happened, we, I think we got an idea of what the Indian boarding schools were for, what was happening there. We, we I'm not gonna get into any more details because we wanna stick with Icklen and I, I don't wanna get off on a, on a, a tangent or go to a separate direction. These Indian boarding schools took place all the way up to the 1960s. And by that time, the government was realizing that these Indian boarding schools, that they were funding now, they were funding besides religious organizations, Became too inefficient and became too expensive. So basically in a way you could say, let's kick out the middleman, which is the Indian boarding schools. And let's just go to just straight in, just grabbing them out of the, out of the homes and, and adopt them off to non-native families. And that, that'll, Hey, we've cut a lot of costs that way. It, of course it's about money and we're talking about lives here especially little native children lives, but uh, we, we'll save a lot of money and we can just walk right in, take them and, and, and that'll be the end of it. And so the Indian Adoption Project of 1958 was created and it was created by none other than the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it was, uh, you know, again, the, the Indian boarding schools were too expensive and inefficient and the success of the boarding schools was called into question. And it was, and they, the government of course, and, and the United States was sitting there with the dominant belief that native children were better off raised in white homes. And, uh, and, and so in those white, you know, it would wipe out the culture, it would assimilate them, and they know better how to raise our children than we do. That's basically the attitude was. So uh, the uh, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs created the Indian Adoption Project, It was administered by the Child Welfare League of America to promote adoption of Native children from 16 Western states by white adoptive families in the East. So they were going to take these children, just walk right on in, and say, you're not a fit parent for whatever reason, and then they would send the children all the way East. And a lot of these children were adopted at such a young age that there was individuals that came out and said uh, that they were part of that adoption project. They grew up never knowing they were native, never knowing they were indigenous. They knew they were different, but they didn't know that that, that they were native. And that that is, you're talking about, that must be in horrible. Because yeah. they accomplished what they wanted. It was to wipe out the identity. So, moving forward. Um, I have a question.
0: So, I yes, do want to say something a little bit back about um, I didn't want to interrupt earlier, you're in a role. <laughs> so no, but I, I agree. The in Canada, um, there were similar boarding schools by Mexico as well. And I cover that in a on a podcast when I talk when I speak to the author Alexander Dawson. I think the yeah. boarding schools in Mexico were different because they actually build them in the community, right? Right. And here I mean, obviously, they separated the children from the, the parents, but I'm thinking about even what you're saying about the Indian Adoption Project, but what's going through my mind when you were saying that is that natives were going through, like, the Indian Relocation Act at the same time. So, like, double, Correct. double the shit we had to go through yeah. during the 50s, yeah.
1: This was, like I said, Rick, this was organized. This wasn't just a hobnob, this organization's doing their part of this side of the United States and this organization is doing their part in another part of the United States and they didn't communicate with each other and the government didn't know what was going on. No, this was systemic. This was actual regulations and laws put into place and everybody was talking to each other and it was funded both private and by the government. Yeah. So it, it, you know, and it was just, it depends on the, on the country, as you pointed out is how they did it. You know. Yeah,
0: I'm also thinking about the the the, the term the sixty scoop, how Canadians describe it, because they also went through the same, you know, Indian, the government taking Indian children at the same time. So, right. yes, yeah, kind of wild. But sorry for interrupting.
1: Yeah, those no, are just my thoughts. You're just giving yeah. good information, Rick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, But yeah. Go ahead, thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, um, uh, going back to it. Uh, the, the Indian Adoption Project was a federal program that acquired Indian children from 50, 1958 to 1967 by the BIA with the help of the prestigious Child Welfare League of America, a successor organization, the Adoption Resource Exchange of North America, resource exchange, that that's always interesting wording. Um, Function from 66 until the early 70s. So this rolled all the way, you can say this went from 58 to the seventies. Here they are phasing out the Indian schools. Okay. And they're bringing in the Indian adoption project, much more efficient, less costly to do what they wanted to do. Okay. So all churches were involved as well. Like I said, religious, it wasn't just the government Uh, in the Southwest, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is documented. They took thousands, Rick, we're not talking hundreds. We're not talking dozens. They took thousands of Navajo children, Diné, to live in Mormon homes and work on Mormon farms. And of course, the Catholic Church and other Christian dominations, they came in and swept up many more uh, uh, Native ki- children and into residential institutions that they ran nationwide, okay, uh, from which some children were then fostered or adopted out, uh, as many as one-third of, of Native children were separated from their families between 41 and 67, one-third. And according to, a, according to a 1976 report uh, by by the Association on American Indian Affairs, it was an article written by Stephanie Woodward. Uh, I always like to get, cite some of my sources and what I've read. That way, hey, if you don't believe me, go read it. But yeah. Stephanie Woodward was the author on this. And it was her report by uh, her uh, writing about the report by the Association on American Indian Affairs in 1976. So I do want to uh, say there, two there, real quick. There's a little basis.
0: Yeah, real quick. To me, I, I met a, uh, um, a tribal member that uh, is elderly and, you know, she's Mormon. And I was like, I always thought to myself, like, uh, how can you be Mormon, <laughs> you know? and yeah. But, it, it, you know, when, when she said that she was in boarding school and that the Mormons ran the boarding school, I was like, ah, that makes sense. You know, but I was just like, it was, yeah, you mean, it, it all fits First together. There's that
1: re-education, yeah. that rethinking that yeah, they Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it was, this was, they had it down to a science. They knew exactly what they were going to teach the children, how to treat the children, how to that's why there was such military discipline within these Indian schools, because they, it was very intense on the re-education, how they wanted the, the, the children to think, how they wanted them to grow up, what they would believe, what would they, that, what they would forget about. So, yeah, it's, it was very... They they really it wasn't just oh I have an idea no they thought about it they organized it they outlined it they had a system in place so uh, during this adoption era okay how they used it was this almost any issue from minor to serious could precipitate the loss of an Indian child they could say uh, you know a mother the child is out in the front yard playing. And they could write and they would just come up and say well you're not watching the child you don't know you don't know how to raise your child we're taking the child it, the, the most minor things like that, that sounds crazy. Uh, um, <laughs> two uh there was two native people interviewed prior to the summit uh you know they, they had a son they said they were separated from their families after hospital stays as young children one for a rash the other for tuberculosis because one got a rash and because the other got tuberculosis and their parents thought prudent to take their children to a hospital. The hospital reported the children were sick, they blamed the parents, they took the kids. Uh, So that's just examples here. And again, Stephanie Woodward, and I can go on and on. If you need a list of sightings and and my my sources, historical accepted and and very uh, well-written articles, be more than happy to supply those. Uh, Moving on, you know, they talked about examples. A third was seized at his babysitter's home when his mother uh, tried to rescue him. When she tried to stop them from taking him, she was jailed. Uh, Another another individual recalled that he was taken after his father died, though his mother did not want to give him up. She just, it was a one-parent, you know, house now. But they said, oh, it's a one-parent house. We'll take the child. I mean, basically, that's what was happening here. So you know, this this Indian adoption act, it did make it efficient, and it really got rid of a lot of the red tape to where they could just, let's just go and take them, they'll never see them again, that's it. Um, Eighty-five percent of Native American children removed moved from their families from 41 to 67 were placed in non-Indian homes. I'm going to say that again, 85 percent was placed in non-Indian homes or institutions said the Association on American Indian Affairs report. Now, <laughs> you mean to tell me you can find a few more homes, you know, for those children within the native community or within their 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 tribal community for them to be placed in. It's obvious, you know, what they were doing, you know. Yeah, me, term, it's wild because a,
0: yeah, a lot of these yes. peop, uh, kids had families on their own, so they don't really need to be adopted out. It's to me, it's wild, you know, how, it's just so sickening, you know, like removing them from their family and then putting them, you know, adopted them into uh, white families that treat them like shit, that assimilate them, that, you know, it's just, I, uh,
1: <laughs> it's Well, hard. what's so upsetting is this, is that, you know, I, I'm I'm not getting into political and I'm not getting into other races, but it's just a fact. You hear yeah. that? You know, so many race out there say, yes, we were spray and they were, they were, they were discriminated against and they were oppressed. And yes, it, it was horrible. I'm not denying that, but you know, we were the only people in the United States until 1978 had to worry about our children being taken from us, mm-hmm. had to worry about the government coming in and just saying your, your child, you can't, you no longer can have your child. We had to live every day. That was one of the reasons why my mother did not register me with the Choctaw Nation until I was eight years old. Because she was scared that they would take. And it was the same thing for my grandmother with my mother. Because they were scared to death, they would come in and take me. And until ICWA came along and other laws came along regarding, you know, when they could take the child and, and child placement and so forth, all, all Native people had to live that way. Scared to death that your child was going to be taken from you. You know, that, that's what's sickening. That would be, I can't imagine... Sitting here in my home and worrying every day whether or not they were going to take my son. Yeah, uh, I can't even imagine that. So, but uh, it, you know, it moves on. But the thing is, let's talk about okay, they got their way with the assimilation. Several, several uh, uh native individuals did not know who they were, or they totally assimilated in a lot into society. Or they knew who they were, but they can't remember anything about their family, their culture, their language, their ways, or anything. Let's tell the truth, Rick. When it comes to our culture and ways, it's not just a taught thing. I believe it's in our DNA. I believe it's who we are. We're not going to change because it's, it, it, it's what we are. That, that is our very existence. And and the thing is, is that after decades of stone children, there was a, there was a, a, um, a study on it. And after decades of stolen children, okay, these children were taken, they experienced a four times, I believe it was a three or four times rate higher of alcoholism and suicide. These children were lost when they grew up. Um, the, here, just an example of how, what, it's systemic. I, I don't believe there's systemic racism day because there's not laws in place. Uh, You know, that you can't have systemic racism, but unless there's laws in place, but at this time there were laws in place, there was systemic racism, it was, it was, and I don't want to say racism, it was, it was basically discrimination based on, and we're leading into it now, this is not about race, this is about national identity, this is about cultural identity, kill the Indian, save the man, they didn't have a problem with, with the child being racially Native American, they had a child. They had a problem with a child living as a Native American, okay, as a Choctaw, as a Dene, as an Ogallala, as a, and and so forth. That was their problem, okay. If their problem was that we are race, they would have kept shooting us and kept killing us. But they didn't. They went a different route. They said, you know, basically, there's nothing wrong with their race. We just can't stand their culture. Their culture is a problem. And that's why this was set up, that's why they did what they did with the Indian boarding schools and with the and, and with the Indian Adoption Project, okay? And why I'm saying that is, is because of the language and because of how ICWA is set up and what it means, okay? Because there's there's a lot, and I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there is uh, arguments out there that ICWA is racially discriminating. No, it's not. There's no language of race in ICWA, there's no, la- and in the past, this was not based on race, this was basically based on a culture. Okay. Um, I just want to say this in 1966, the BIA announced a press release that adoptions of Indian children through the Indian Adoption Project, with help from the Child Welfare League of America, were increasing, and they boasted that little Indians were brightening the homes and lives of many American families mostly non-Indians. The children ranged in age from newborn to 11 years old. Those little Indians that were brightening the homes of, of non-Native families. So, it, I mean, they, they didn't even try to deny it. They didn't even, I mean, it was out there. Here it is, we're doing this and nobody can do anything about it. Um, according to Sandy Whitehawk, one of the TRC commissioners, She said, my adopted mother constantly reminded me that no matter what I did, I came from a pagan race, whose only hope for redemption was to assimilate to white culture. See, it wasn't It wasn't race. If it was race, they would have never tried to assimilate us. It's all about culture. Very important. Very, very important. So that's basically the background of how, you know, what happened, the history of it, the thinking of it, very, very important, Rick, the thinking of it that led up to ICWA. It was, okay, we've had these wars with all these tribes, all these nations. Um, we, We just wanna get rid of, the problem is not them, it's their culture. They don't think like us. They don't wanna use the land like us. They don't wanna give up the resources. They don't wanna sell the resources. So if we change their culture, then pretty much we could wipe out the rest of the, the reservations and take all the land, and we don't have to deal with this with this Indian issue. So it was cultural genocide from 19 from the 1860s till, till 1978. It was culture genocide. And how do you wipe out a culture? How do you wipe out a belief system? You take the children. You take the children, you re-educate them, you make them like any other United States citizen and assimilate them in. And that was the history of it. That's what led up to ICWA.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and even, uh, are, you, are you at the end of the notes or, cause I'm trying to.
1: Uh, at the end of the history of it, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, That's so pretty- it's-
1: I wanted awesome. to get the history. I mean, we could go into so many details of what happened, of of everything, but, you know, like you and I talked, Rick, let's let's keep on the path, you know, of where we're going to, and that's to get to ICWA and start talking about Equa. We can go into the language of ICWA right now, if you'd like to, and, and start talking about why it, you know, how it came about. Uh, of course, it was signed into place in 1978. Uh, and what it was about the indian child welfare act was it didn't necessarily it does not pertain to marriage what it pertains to is when a child is removed from the home where does that child go yeah and it's based on they as ICWA says and and we can go through this through the language of ICWA, it ICWA says that they want to the purpose of the law is to make sure that that indian child keeps a connection, keeps a connection with the culture and the ways of his community. That's the whole point of it. It's to it's to protect the child from being assimilated and having it's it's to protect the child from cultural genocide. It's not about race. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with the Indian child because also it doesn't say race in there when they define what is an Indian child. What it defines is, is that is the Indian child tribally enrolled, or do they have the potential of being tribally enrolled because their parent is tribally enrolled, or a grandparent is tribally enrolled? So it doesn't say an Indian child is a Native Amer- of Native American ancestry or indigenous ancestry. No, it says a child that is enrolled in a tribally, in a tri- I'm sorry, in a tribal nation a native tribal nation. So let me go ahead and pull that up real fast. So I'll pull up the act and we can go through it step by step. And then what's really gonna take up a lot of time, uh, Rick, is when we get into cases and case precedent. Um, yeah. That's where, oh my goodness, with all, we've got the newest ones that's come out. We have examples of the past. Uh, let's
0: see that, yeah, I was trying to, because I have a shared drive some people that listen to the podcast know about the shared drive and i have a bunch of equal cases but they're printed out right Right, no problem yeah and, and, and I, pound, I, you
1: can get any one of these in one of these cases and that would be fine yeah when i get uh, a
0: printer I'll, I'll scan them up so people listening uh can can know when i when i get a one of those printers that scans digitally whatever i will uh, put them up on the um on the shared drive, but I, I do have uh, on the shared drive now. So people that are listening, um, I have uh, equal case regulation analysis twenty eighteen, and uh-huh. I do have one case: the Santa Clara Pueblo versus Martinez. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a very specific case, but that's uh, like I said, that's a whole conversation. So, you know the Santa Clara versus Martinez.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh. Now, as for, I just want to say, I am not a lawyer yet. I still have to take the uh, bar exam. So, I cannot give out any legal advice at this time, of course, but I can break down the law for you and explain to you what exactly what it says and what it means. Here we go. Uh, There it is, 1214, 95th Congress. Let's see here. we'll go through here and and we really want to break down the law what it is and what it means because their arguments today's arguments they keep based on that it, it violates the equal protection clause which the equal protection clause deals with you know of course equal protection among you cannot discriminate against race you cannot discriminate against various groups and institutions such as the Goldwater Institute. I want everybody to really take notice of that. The Goldwater Institute is one of them. Uh, They're they're the most vigorous. They're the most uh, uh, dedicated to wiping out ICWA. That's their whole point of being, uh, is to wipe out ICWA. And they've made arguments in various cases that this violates equal protection clause that it is racially discriminating against both uh, why, uh, non-Native families, as well as the Native child as well. Can I ask and, who's funding I, them? It say that again, sir? Who,
0: who's funding them?
1: Uh, the Goldwater Institute, uh, you would have to find out. I can look up exactly who's funding them. Uh, it's various, uh, well, I can tell you who's funding them. A couple of them, it's all, uh, most of their funding comes from private donations, such as the Koch brothers is one of them the famous Koch brothers as well as other uh uh rich uh, uh business entities is funding them
0: yeah I'm looking right now at the at the, um, the law which is on uh, the public law 95 uh, slash 608 the Equa right mm-hmm. the, the, the um, you know, whenever you have a law, there has to be definitions about who is what and what does this mean. Because so for Indian, Indian so here says the, on the this section says number three, Indian means any person who is a member of an Indian tribe or who is an Alaska Native and a member of a regional corporation, which you know Alaska uh, tribes run as corporations, as defined by section seven of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Uh Uh, And then Indian child means any unmarried person who is under the age of 18 and is either A, a member of an Indian tribe, or B, is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe and is the biological child of a member of an Indian tribe. And then uh, five, Indian, Indian child's tribe means A, the child tribe in which and an Indian child is a member or eligible for membership, or B, in, in the case of Indian child who is a member of or eligible for membership, is more than one tribe, the Indian tribe with which the Indian child has the more significant contacts. So I think it goes to what's Indian custodian mean, what, you know, Indian organization, Indian tribe, parents, reservation, all. There's so many different What secretary means, secretary of the interior, <laughs> tribal yeah. courts, you know. So, yeah. And it, it's just a uh, title one child custody proceedings. So, I don't know if you really want to get into it. I mean, this is something that you can Google. And people Google um, Indian or equal or Indian Child uh, Welfare Act. And you go even on the Wikipedia. If you go on the Wikipedia and then click on the left, there's a PDF where you all this gets pulled up. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So, yeah. Right. So you have, yeah, with every law, you have to have the, the, you know, the state of mind. Okay. And then you have to have the act that's criminal now with any, but any other law, you know, civil law or what have you, you got to have a definition of what the law is about. Their definition never mentions race. It never says, uh, the race of Indian or the Indian race or the native race. It says tribe meaning.
0: Sovereignty. So that is
1: literally like a country. That is literally yeah. like a nation. It's a culture. It's a people.
0: Okay, I think so, this is this is where sovereignty has has a big play in it, and people don't correct. realize. It. They, they like to say, "Yeah, it's racial, racial, racial," but this is about sovereignty. Like our, it, for example, one example I would say, and that happened in the '90s is the uh-huh. situation with uh, with Cuba with Elian Gonzalez, where uh-huh. the the boy and his mother came to the U.S. via, I think, I I don't know, a raft, and then Mm -hmm. the the boy's family uh, in the U.S. tried to adopt him, but... uh, He was a
1: Cuban national.
0: Yeah, Cuban national, yeah. So so the the little boy, Elian Gonzalez, uh, and then the U.S. government came in, took that boy from the family's arms, (laughs) right? I remember the pictures of, they they, they grabbed that, that little boy from his family in my in somewhere in Florida and send him back to Cuba because his dad was still alive, right? right? So this 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 means that you know the U.S. government understands sovereignty. Like that little boy, exactly. you know, belonged in Cuba because his dad was still there alive. So this is the same thing too. Like if our Indian child, you know, has family or a he he he's a citizen of a sovereign nation, native nation. That so the in, ar- yeah, yes, they should go to their their, their respected community, and have their respective community find, you know, family. And or by find, all accounts, you
1: know, Rick, like you're saying, you've made a very good point. If the U.S. government actually respected total sovereignty, which we are, we are sovereign nations, under the definition we are sovereign nations, under the laws, if they actually respected that, they would do the same thing that they did for that little uh, Cuban national boy. They yeah. would come in and take that Indian child out and send that Indian child back to its nation but they don't. We have all these court cases and all these laws and all these lawyers in the Goldwater Institute. Actually, this shouldn't even be argued in court, okay? It should, on, the child should automatically go back to the sovereign nation, national of, whether it's the Choctaw nation, the Chickasaw nation, uh, uh, the, the Seneca nation, or any other nation. We, if they truly represent our sovereign rights and that we were a sovereign nation, they would just send the military in like they did with that little boy and take the child out of there. But instead, sorry about that. I lost connection quickly. Got it back. Okay. Um, Get back to it. But like you said, I mean, you made an excellent point. If they did respect our total sovereignty, like they're supposed to, then they would have reacted the same way. You know, whenever there's a native child being held by a non-native family, but they don't, we're too busy fighting.
0: Yeah that's that's the issue too so i you know there's a lot of people online this is why i think it's so wild because you know the eco the um there's so many aspects to this ICWA conversation that has go, been going on this last couple of weeks that you know i think people are missing it so a lot of people lately and i talk about it in the podcast try to um try to say that indigeneity is purely a uh, biological so and I, I think this is where even like the, the Supreme Court justices were asking questions, you know, really stupid questions, from my point of view, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's, it's equal racial because mm-hmm. it's biological. What, what does it mean to be native? You know, and I think um, again, it's it's uh, it's our sovereign. We're a political class, mm-hmm. and I think it's not purely biological. It's also political or <laughs> political, like I said, political yeah. class. So yes. I think, you know, because um, so, a lot of us are are mixed with different, different quote unquote races. you know, we, we're white, with black, with Asian, with, you know, Middle Eastern and native, you know, so we have so many different backgrounds now that, you know, that we can't just say native people are only brown. Right. right. And I hate, I hate saying that, that word or saying that sentence, but it's true. And I hate saying that because we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't oblige to just phenotypes of what it means to be native. No, it's, it's we have a political sovereign, you know. Uh,
1: well, we were, so. we, were, and we were acknowledged as a political sovereign nation. We're the only people in the United States where the government sent representatives to sign treaties with us, recognizing wow. us, that, that our governing body was there representing us to sign treaties, to talk with the US, to, to, to come to agreements. We're the only people in the United States that have done that. So therefore, you know, we, uh, we're different. We we are separate nations. We have, we have sat, we have spoken all these years as a separate nation. The government has had to deal with us as a separate nation. They have recognized us as a separate nation, but when it doesn't fit the narrative or what they want to do, then they kind of overlook a few things. You know, Mm -hmm. and and that's that's the problem. That's why we're even going to court when this because Rick, a lot of states, you'll see a lot of states. It's still going on today up in up in North Dakota or uh, no, I'm sorry, South Dakota at the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation. There are Indian children taken away and the hearings on whether or not the native family can keep the child or, or retain possession of the child. Some court hearings last about five minutes. As well and, it, yeah. and, it's a deal and they're out and they've taken the child there the, the problem is we have a federal law in place but we have states that are not following that federal law and that's yeah. going right, why we're having a lot of these cases here because the 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 state law for the family code they're following that instead of following you know uh equa
0: yeah you know i think i think maybe we should Pause and, and and end this episode soon, like here, so we okay. and you can go and talk about the specific cases. So look, I, I want to look them up too because I have them in my uh, cabinet, right? I do too. So do yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look them up and then I will. Um, you know, we can discuss them with them together and make another episode to kind of you know talk about each each case when it. In I regards, agree.
1: Yeah. We, like you said, we wanted to go into why ICWA was even created. Now yeah. we know. That- you know the why because they were just coming in taking native children and making sure they never went back to their nation never went back to their community never went back to their culture and they were and they were sending them out east and ICWA was created to stop that mm-hmm.
0: yeah and that's that's um the back history is really hard because there's a lot of movies. I don't like referring people to movies, I, you know, or just books, you know, but I think some right. people function differently. But I think there's uh, there, I saw one movie about this, it was a Canadian movie about this a boy that was a really good hockey player, and then he was in a boarding school with Catholics, and then there was a lot of abuse, and it was really hard to watch. I forgot the name of the movie. Yeah. Um, uh. Yeah, but I was just, you know, oh, God, I wish I knew the name. Uh there's always one movie, but with West Studi, um, the only good Indian or something like that, right?
1: I know the movie you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, 12 and
0: Yeah. And that that I watched that movie once and it's sometimes hard to find. <laughs> but they're
1: hard, yeah, they are. But I, you know, I, I have I have stories from my family, my grandmother, you know, and her and her brother and and her cousins that was taken away. And Somewhere or another, well, you know, here we are. She was half white. She was, uh, her mother was full. Her father was Irish. And why they allowed them to, allowed him to take her out, I don't know. She never went into it. But there was, like I said, there was Native communities where they were literally hiding their children. They would be on the watch out for, and the ones who rounded up the children were the Indian agents. They were the ones that rounded up the children and sent them out. And you had... Entire communities literally hiding their children from the Indian agent. Uh, so they wouldn't be taken away. They would be sent to another family at another village at another place, another community to where that they couldn't find them. And, and so it was, you know, when you have to live that way, it was so bad that you have to live that way. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare. Yeah. And again, the reason why they did it, It wasn't about race. They they didn't want to wipe us out, you know, as a race. They wanted to wipe out the culture. And as we stated in ICWA, it's to keep the connections to their culture and never in ICWA does it mention race. So that's yeah. why that history is important here because it led up to why ICWA, the wording of it was written the way it was and why when we get into these cases and we discuss these arguments and I'll have a friend with me, attorney Chandra Williams, who is an excellent, she can give legal advice. Uh, she is one hell of a, a, of an attorney, family attorney, and she is very knowledgeable on cus- child custody issues. And she can get into uh, really get into the arguments, of what they're saying and and Mm -hmm. giving that legal advice but it i can tell you right off the bat all their arguments it's all about race and it has nothing to do with race but we have the cato institute we have the goldwater institute there are four or five institutes their sole purpose is to destroy it and why they would be wasting their time when we have so many other issues to deal with i don't know that just blows my mind
0: But yeah, there's people always chipping away at our sovereignty. That's an issue too. States, organization, corporations, you know, it's this constant chipping away.
1: So Right, yeah, it's chipping away at sovereignty, it's chipping away at everything. But they can't make an argument on sovereignty because if they did, now we're moving into what ICWA discusses, that Mm -hmm. tribal citizenship, that to to a sovereign nation. Can't do that. You'd lose the case.
0: You gotta yeah. go on race. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, people that, that are listening, you know, uh, you can look up to, there's books on residential schools. There's, you know, a bunch of resources on that. Uh, and, you know, boarding schools, residential schools weren't just in the U.S. Like I said before, they're also in Mexico, Canada, Hawaii, Australia. This is a tactic that, that was used by colonizers throughout the world. Sending young people to to boarding schools, or, you know, or, or or residential schools, whatever they're called, you know, in different places, and and simulating them to colonial way of life and trying to you know destroy uh, their their communities by destroying our their children culture. are our
1: future, Rick. If, yeah. you ta- if you alter the children, you alter the future. You alter who we are. Yeah. That's simple. So-
0: yeah, so I think this is why it's also important to, for people to learn this history, and I always have you know uh, historical background episodes because I feel like people they so focus in the now that they they don't they you know they need to they almost like they have an amnesia right they have to know that what was the process to bring Allah into equal, equal right. place and why it's so important for us to. You know, protect our sovereignty, protect our cultures, protect our children, you know, and for that for teaching our children culture, you know. So I think sometimes people get a little bit um what's that word? Uh, complacent or a little bit like they just uh don't think culture is important as they should. Be aware. Yeah, be aware. Be
1: aware of what's going on. The little, like you said, the chipping away at this, the chipping away at sovereignty, the chipping away at culture. Be aware because they're doing it very, you know, uh, uh, incognito in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, they are it's scary because yeah, but yeah, this end the year, and they will come back for part two with uh, specific cases and why they were were important, and then um, yeah so thank you yeah
1: uh, last example is, is of what wiping out that culture my grandmother she said you know she told me that she lost she she was fluent in Choctaw she she in fact that was really a lot of ways her first language and after going to the Indian boarding school for two years she lost it and she she lost most of it and she would talk to cousins and others and Trying to get back up on on being fluent in it again, and then she taught me, and we would speak Choctaw to each other, and that was her way of, of getting that back. And then I was learning from her, but because of her, I lost a lot. I'm not fluent in Choctaw. We could, we could say various various statements and so forth, but because that Indian boarding school, they changed three generations, three generations, Rick. Yeah, and and they knew what they were doing.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really uh, the yeah. You're right. The impact on what of these in residential schools is just uh, it's going to be lasting for a while. And this is why, uh, just like you know, within Comanches, our language is almost it was almost dead. One of our one of our uh, dialects has has is gone. We only have one left, you know, and. Um, I think we're trying to preserve that and we're doing a good job, I think, you know, coming back from only five people speaking it fluently to now the youth opening up a school where to teach the youth, right? Uh, The
1: Comanche, the the various, uh, 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 you know, tribes of the Apache nation, you guys have done an awesome job, because like you said, it was about wiped out. Completely.
0: yeah yeah <laughs> so I, I we take it seriously at this house we have a war. We, we you know we learn we talk to each other so I think right. this is um we have to undo this damage you know yes. so I hope people listening they can you know do their own research and um see Just type why in
1: this... and you'll pull up there's too much to read.
0: yeah so much <laughs> but yeah but uh, thank you for coming on and we'll come we'll we'll come back for part two. And we will we'll hopefully people, you know, um, you know, can uh, look these things up. So thank you,
1: uh, Yoko Keith. Thank you, Rick. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much.